0: And we're back, you're back, it's episode 81 of the Panoramic Outdoor Podcast. On the podcast today, we're going to be chatting a little elk, maybe not a little elk, a large number of elk, we'll say, in uh, the Ontario region. Uh, We got Joseph Hammeron, who is a
1: elk biologist. Professor, well, retired professor from Laurentian University. And uh, we dive
0: into a little elk restoration project, which is super exciting when you think about it. Um, we can chat a little bit more about it leading in, but I'm wondering, Chase, what's, what's new on our end here? We
1: got YouTube up and running. We got, uh, yeah, yeah, we posted our first YouTube video that uh, uh, we've gotten up since, I don't know, it's been quite some time now. Over a year, I think, definitely over a year, maybe a couple of years now since we post anything on that platform. So hopefully we're we'll be bringing some more YouTube content to you guys here on a more regular basis. Looking forward to that. What's really exciting is, <laughs> and you'll you'll notice if
0: you if you tune into our channel, uh, if you go give it a click, maybe a subscribe, that the content that we had on there earlier to what we put out now, I can say that you would there was. Because of the lack or the gap there between those videos, there's a a steep punctuation in the growth
1: of the company and the product, we'll say. There's been some upgrades made and some camera gear and uh, education. So Style,
0: a little confidence, we'll say. So it's all good. We're growing. Uh, We're hoping that we're bringing you some quality content. So we're excited to have the YouTube channel up and running. That's the Panoramic Outdoors YouTube channel. Uh, check it out. That's another way you can help support us. Um, the other way too is we got the store rolling hot.
1: Yeah. So we we've been getting some new new items in the store here um, almost monthly for the last few months here, and uh, we got some more stuff coming through down the pipe here pretty soon. Um, little sale on right now, twenty five percent off select hats and all our tees in stock. So, um, if you want to hop on that, you know, super good deal, check it out. And, um, yeah, check out what else we got in store. So, for sure.
0: Unfortunately, Sheldon's not able to join us today. He's been super busy with work. I know he's been grinding it and, uh, probably missing his R&R a little, I, I, I would guess.
1: Yeah. He's actually out of town right now. So that's the main reason he's not here. Otherwise I'm sure he'd be hopping on and having a conversation with us. So, um, Thanks to Shelly for putting in the hard hours. Yeah. Shelly on, on that end. If, but, you're out, uh,
0: if you're out there listening, buddy, I hope you're tilting one back on this Friday night for us.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the folks are missing you on the other end here. So um miss you, buddy. And uh yeah, I guess something else I wanted to chat about here on the intro while we while we're kinda rolling is you know, things are warming up here quite a bit. We're getting into some nicer weather. There's still some snow in the forecast, which is uh a little bit grueling to look at it's a
0: manitoba spring man manitoba yeah. spring
1: yeah typical so don't let it get you down the heat is coming but uh with that obviously i'm sure 90 percent of the manitobans out there are now, are now uh you know breaking out their archery gear for the first time of the year and um, i'm kind of curious you know tristan are, are you up to anything different this year for for plans or any upgrades or anything on your gear or shooting wise or what are you thinking?
0: I've got some different gear that I'm looking to upgrade this year so maybe we'll, we'll chat about that in a second but on the archery front I have made one upgrade. Um, I'm still rocking the dad bow. I'm still low on arrows. <laughs> um, I I gotta nail something with the dad bow just to be clear. That's, that's a goal of mine. I want to put in the time and show that you can do it. But the upgrade for the shooting setup this year is I have six flax bales behind the target now. And I'm hoping that's going to help circumvent the, the arrow problem a little bit.
1: That's a good upgrade because I, I was shooting uh, at Chris's place the other day and like my second shot I lost an arrow. So um, all the rest were in the bullseye obviously. You know what? and <laughs> That's that's what it is too. You know, you
0: he, he might get a little bored just... Shooting 30 yards consistently, even though that's probably what's best for your practice and you're zeroing in. So I always find once you get that little confidence in you and you want to start pushing things and then the next session you're out and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can start at 50, no problem. I was shooting great from 50 last time I was shooting. So first arrow goes and it doesn't, you don't hear
1: any sound yeah. after you release it. Just kind of a whoosh. <laughs> Into the darkness. Yeah. Or the grass. Whichever.
0: So if you're if you're complaining about the amount of space that you have to shoot, maybe maybe I've seen some folks shooting like uh twenty yards into their garage, for example. Because that's what they're that, that's what they're afforded. They're putting in the reps, good job. The downside of having some more of that rural space is that you'll lose an arrow or two, for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've seen our buddy uh Stu Thompson there. He was pulled his archie target out of like uh, i'm not sure if it was his house or um a garage or what it was and put it on this little porch he had and he was flinging arrows yeah right that thing on the deck and i was like man there'd be some arrows in the wall if that was my place <laughs> guys probably never lost an arrow though no i guess it certainly ups the uh accountability the accountability and the i'm sure the focus a little bit you know that's he don't uh drop that focus too much if there's a little bit more on the line than just an arrow yeah how about you
0: are you aside from losing an arrow at chris what's your story there for the gear
1: i do uh yeah i do want to upgrade some stuff um i'm it's obviously most lots of it's going to be uh budget dependent but um i'm i'm gonna need to get some arrows this year and i've been watching some youtube videos and i think they totally messed me up man because uh some of the videos I've been watching, they're they're really dialing in the arrows and looking at the straightness of them and like the 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 spine and, and how to properly fletch these arrows, which end to fletch them at, uh, which end should be your broadhead end and which should be like your A arrow group, your B arrow group and your like mystery backup arrow group, which which are really like not even that bad compared to some of the arrows I'm yeah, shooting I'm sure man. so <laughs> I, I know
0: that feeling because I get particular about hand loading yeah. and I'm like oh man I need to like weigh each powder out to the the granule and I need to trim the cases to the, the micrometer or whatever the yeah. you know the terminology is there but on the other hand with the bow I'm almost ready just to go back to aluminum arrows and, and be like I can straighten these things if I need to <laughs> <laughs> I can probably put that through the side of a bus.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that that's, I mean, one of the concerns with the carbon arrows is like every time I miss a target, I'm like, oh, it's a little chip in this one. I'm not sure if I should be tossing yeah. this one again. Yeah. And then, uh, so yeah, so with all that arrow business, I'm I'm now I'm looking at uh, at fletching setups to flush my own arrows. Should I do three fletchings or four fletchings? And then uh, I think I'm gonna. Just go ahead and invest in some some new broadheads this year, some sharper ones. Uh, I, I was pretty disappointed in in the sharpness of those muzzies that uh, that I ran last year. So I think based on some some conversations that I had, I'm probably going to upgrade to like the some sort of G5 product that are literally laser sharp broadheads. And uh, yeah, I just hope I can draw back and shoot something next year. So, that's
0: the thing, man. I the that's a, that's the mission with the dad bow is that the the equipment has not failed me yet. Aside from that time I dropped my bow to the tree, that was not good, but it it's about me not being able to put myself in the right situation so far. Mm-hmm. That's been the, the downfall. It hasn't been that my, I can't shave with my broadhead. Yeah. I get, I get wanting to minimize risk and stuff like that, but. Sometimes I feel like we work ourselves up so much about like, everything's got to be perfect in the setup. And if like, if you talk to dad about what he would have done, he would have laughed at us. He's told us straight up what he would have done. Throw that bow in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Get
1: out there with the rifle. Yeah.
0: What are you spending all your time in a tree stand with a bow when you had a perfectly
1: good rifle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, he makes a strong argument,
1: yeah, yeah, totally. I've had that conversation with him before when I was hunting archery in rifle season, yeah, oh, you would have had that thing if you would have had the rifle for sure, yeah, probably would have <laughs> yeah you're not wrong, yeah,
0: but you know what i I shouldn't be too hard on you because like gear wise for me what what I've been looking at lately too is like a i I need a a set of boots for like early season hunting. Um, I've got like insulated ones that I'll rock for like that kind of October range. And I've got the real late season ones that we can use for the the rifle season that I've never had a problem with. I think you bought me that pair from Cabela's years Mm -hmm. back and they've been awesome. Um, but I've had a heck of a time finding this early season boot, something to like hunt elk in for the archery season or, um, do a lot of that uplanding in early on and something that's not s- insulated. So Cabela's really didn't have much. And w- when I was checking on, I'm really s- scared to buy a boot online. Mm-hmm. So I just don't want to pull a trigger. Yeah. Um, I've gotten some like recommendations from folks, but I couldn't really find much. So I started looking at like some of the hiking places and I started to find stuff that maybe fits the bill a little bit more. Um, but when I went to go try some of these things on, I went to four different spots. None of them had any stocking. Nice. So I was like, this kind of defeats the purpose of me driving around Winnipeg trying to...
1: Yeah. You just burned $50 worth of gas. Yeah.
0: <laughs> to try these things on. like I got my foot sized, which was helpful, I guess. But I like... You know you want that boot to fit good. You don't want to like...
1: Yeah. Yeah. You want a good piece of footwear for... You know, putting on those big miles.
0: Yeah. Anyways, I landed up buying one online. Nice. So. And? It's 10, bu- 10 bucks to send it back. It'll be here on Wednesday. I got the Vasque St. Elias. Um, from what the reviews I saw, they were good. It's kind of got like all leather construction, so it should be a little bit more rugged than some of these other ones. Nice. And it's still waterproof. The, the one funny thing I want to say, though, is like... I went to some of these hiking stores to get some recommendations and some of the staff were super helpful. Some of them were like, we'll say like maybe the, uh, the footlocker of the hiking world. (laughs) Just like, they're just there to sell swag and like get it off the shelves. And then one of the joints I went to, I won't name names, um, didn't have any stock. So I was like, okay, show me what you have for rain jackets. Like, I guy's like, oh, come over here. I was like, I don't want Gore-Tex though because run- I run—I run Gore-Tex right now and it's good and like the mist and the s- stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I started mucking around in the bush for an extended period of time, especially with, like a backpack on, I get soaked. Like, There's just no way around it. Mm-hmm. And literally the next six jackets this guy showed me were straight Gore-Tex. <laughs> they all like Gore-Tex. <laughs> I was like... I get wet in these and he just didn't believe me. (laughs) I don't know what to tell him. I was like, okay, thanks for trying. I'm on to the next door. Next. See you later. So I don't know if anyone else has had that experience or maybe I'm the only one that gets Gore-Tex soaked, but, um,
1: I got a, I have a Gore-Tex jacket that I usually run duck hunting when it's raining super hard and it. It generally, it keeps me pretty dry actually. Um, the only downfall of that jacket is I lost the hood from it, so. Right.
0: And <laughs> that's that's, a, that's another part I don't get. Is a lot of these waterfowl jackets don't have hoods on them. Yeah, that's so kind of silly. I, the back of my neck is always getting wet. Yeah. Because
1: I run a toque or a hat or whatever, but. Especially when you're riding the boat, it'd be nice to have that hood. Yeah. When you're cutting waves. Yeah. Oh, cutting white caps. Yeah. No kidding. So uh, besides some boots, you've been. Putting some boots in the dirt around here with your garden. What's what's the latest update on that? Right. So we got the, we're still waiting for the garlic to come up. So that's
0: kind of like holding our breath. Hoping it's coming up soon. We haven't had much rain lately though. So that could be a factor too. But the uh, the plants are all starting inside here. And actually some of the peppers are starting to get flowers on them already. So we're going to have to chop them down a little bit, which you're supposed to do. Tomatoes are up and running. Got the herbs going. So, really, I we got the raised beds with the uh, kind of like the greenhouse canopy mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, we'll be transitioning the plants kind of into that canopy to kind of settle and harden off and then go
1: from there. Are you going to run some heat in there or are you just going to hope it doesn't freeze too bad?
0: I think we'll wait until it gets a little bit more... Cause we got to harden them off yet. So they'll still be going in and out for Mm -hmm. a few hours each day. And then once they're hardened off, ideally, then hopefully it'll be warm enough that we can just keep them in there overnight kind of scenario. Interesting. (laughs) Cause they should hold heat. I would imagine. Yeah. And I guess the other thing we got on the go is we got to start planning for uh turkey camp.
1: That's right around the corner, man. I bought my tags the other day. Did you? Yeah. I bought, you know, it was funny because I, I tried looking for my, my spare tags that I had. And uh, I was running around. I was like, oh man, I knew I shouldn't give those tags away this fall. <laughs> so I was scrambling But um, I ordered a bunch online. Uh, I ordered two extra tag packs. Um, plus I ordered my turkey tag online. So hopefully that gets here before opening day. Um, not like I can go at opening day, but ideally that week I'll get out. And, uh, and then I was mucking around and I'm going through like my spring jackets and stuff. And I found a blank tag in one of my wow. spare pockets in one of my spring jackets. So I'm like, funny. jackpot, there's my bear tag. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. You're planning to go for bear this year too, eh? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, the, the freezer's looking pretty empty right about now. So, um, and I want to just mess around with that a little bit and, yeah. and I've always had that, uh, that bit of a, uh, um, prejudice kind of thought around bear meat and i think i want to just dive into it and kind of get rid of that and see what kind of awesome shit you can create with it so mess with the flavors and and see what we can come up with and put some in the pit barrel and corn some and yeah whatever we can do with it and try to figure it out we're gonna be running the pit barrel this weekend yeah looking forward to it either a mess of ribs or a mess of chickens depending on uh Depending on what we can find. I feel like we're just I don't want to say scratching the surface because we've used it quite a bit, but there's
0: still so much room to play around with that thing. You're yeah. gonna throw some onions in there. I know some folks that run those like uh whatever they're called, like the caramelized onion or whatever, where you mm-hmm. basically just sits in there for hours on end.
1: There's a uh there's a Pit Barrel group that I follow on Facebook actually and they got some like pretty cool stuff that they do on there, so very pumped i've been i've been on the wing train heavy on that on that baby i did some wings last night on there and uh it's pretty hard to beat those can't so. go wrong oh man spectacular
0: i'm a, i'm like getting excited just thinking about it. anyways pit barrel supports us you all know this already but if you want to get into one check them out at pitbarrelcooker.com they also uh
1: distribute them here at lux barbecue in winnipeg check out the uh They have a map on their website of all the Canadian dealers. So, if you're not from Winnipeg, check them out. Go to the website, check out the map, and uh, pick yourself up a pit barrel. They are literally a fraction of the price of other, like, um, not only, like, smokers, barbecues, but, like, charcoal cookers and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, all in a self-contained unit, basically. We wrap that thing up, put it on the ice, and we... Super simple. I can pick that sucker up, throw it in the box of the truck, and we can go... Have some just like next level food anywhere you want to go. We've been to elk camp. We've been ice fishing with it. We've been to deer camp with it. We've been everywhere. Turkey so, camp. Yeah. Strap it down, put it in the box, yeah. get to go. Um And if
0: you're in the States, I think it's even a sweeter deal because they they do, they got like some ridiculous rate on shipping, I'm pretty sure down there, right? Eh? I think it's free shipping in the States. Yeah. For the 48 there or whatever, Right. Eh? Yeah. Wow. That'd be handy. Hell yeah. Anyways. Check them out. Uh, we got the YouTube video up of us trying to cook some Smokies in some of Manitoba's coldest weather. Yeah. Check that out. Uh, we love putting the pit barrel to the test. We love everything about that little cooker unit. And if you want to see why we love it, check out that YouTube video.
1: Awesome. On yeah. to Joe. On to Joe. Just one big thanks again for everybody who entered the, uh, our uh, giveaway on social media. We had $700 worth of stuff to give away, and we had over 900 people enter that giveaway, which spectacular. Thank you very much again, and congratulations to uh, Derek Benson, I believe. Was, was the winner of that, and yeah. I just met up with him today, actually, to uh, transfer that stuff over to him. So, um, big thanks, everybody, and uh, stay tuned for more awesome stuff. On to the podcast.
0: Very excited about Joe here, and I think i just want to reflect on it for a second because like when i'm listening to joe talk you can tell that he's spent much like some of our other guests like uh we'll say dr vince Graydon or um dr frank baldwin there that they've they've spent a lifetime in the wilderness or trying to you know maintain the conservation of maybe not just one species but multiple species in joe's case and we dive into that a bit
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it, we get like this real behind the scenes journey of what it's like to try and bring a species back or try to bolster that species Mm -hmm. in an area and why that happens and how that happens. So that's something I I didn't know before. So that's, I'm really excited for this podcast because I think we get a good peek of that.
1: Yeah. I, I really like this, uh, um, talking with Joseph because you know, we, we get a lot of, there's a lot of conversation around around stuff in the western provinces and elk and, and everything, and I think this gives us a pretty good look into some of the stuff that can happen east of the, the Rockies there, and east of Alberta kind of thing. So, um, super cool conversation. Uh,
0: That's an absolutely outdoors.
1: And so, Joe, thanks for being number 81. You're up next, buddy. All right. So, joining us on the podcast today, we are uh, uh, graced by the presence of Professor Joseph Hammer. Am I saying is that how you say your last name correctly? Hammer. Yeah, Hammer. Yeah. yeah. That the Canadian version. I'm assuming. <laughs> how would how would you <laughs> how would you say your name uh, from where
2: you were born or where you grew up? Well, I'm I'm Czech, right? And Czechs would say Hammer, but uh, yeah. Here, everybody says hammer, so that's uh, fine.
1: <laughs> right on. And uh, if anyone listening to the podcast today has ever uh, did any research on Joseph before uh, before the podcast, or know Joseph, he's certainly uh, has a large list of um, animals, species, uh, biology topics that you've you've studied and uh today we have you here to talk a little bit about some of the elk work that you've done and a little bit of elk history in in canada here and um well before we dive into it though joseph uh thanks for coming on with us today and uh why don't you tell uh our listeners where you're coming from
2: today okay well uh thanks for having me first uh and uh i uh did my undergraduate uh, degree in biology in wisconsin actually in the states and then went to the university of guelph and uh did i worked on bats big brown bats believe it or not for my uh, masters that was the first mammal that i i really got into and for a while i was really interested in bats but then uh, i got a chance to go over to europe to austria to the alps to the mountains and. Um, Uh, do my PhD on the chamois, which is uh, like a mountain goat, European mountain goat. It's related to the North American mountain goat. And so I was there for five years uh, chasing these uh, chamois around the mountains and darting them, putting uh, radio uh, transmitters on them and so on. And then I came back to uh, Ontario and I did a postdoc on white-tailed deer up in the central Ontario uh, area south of Lake Nipissing, if, if you know where that is. But uh, uh, yeah, we trapped white tails for uh, four years and, and again put radio collars on them, looked at how they dispersed from the winter range into their summer ranges and I looked uh, at some aspects of their physiology so I took a lot of blood samples and so on. Um, and then uh, got connected to uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury uh, uh, came to Sudbury and started uh, working on elk and uh, yeah and I taught at Laurentian I I taught at Cambrian College in Sudbury as well for uh, over 30 years and uh, during this time I I did research on several wildlife species elk being one of them but also uh, black bear and um, uh, for a while, we did wolves, uh, ra- capturing and radio calling some wolves and uh, uh, did a wild turkey uh, pilot reintroduction up here, which didn't go very well. Uh, it's just just too harsh for them. Um, so those were some of the things that I was uh, busy with for the past 30 years. But elk were the primary um, animal that I worked on. And... Uh, uh, it was mostly reintroducing elk, uh, to Ontario, right?
1: That's super interesting. That is a, uh, what I would say a laundry list of, of, uh, just amazing things that, that you've worked on in the past here. And, uh, I, I think one, one interesting thing that I, I kind of, uh, thought about going into this podcast here, you know, we, the, the way I got kind of introduced in, introduced to you was uh, a fellow that was a polar bear biologist, uh, my buddy Dave, who's now a good friend of mine, um, kind of turned me on to you to talk elk with you. And then uh, further investigations with some other guests and some other people kind of tie, tie you further into the uh, biology community here with Dave Salmoni, our latest or uh, one of our recent guests and uh i i think that it's really cool to think about um this this uh wave or this effect that that uh you've really had on the uh biology community the uh conservation community the wildlife study community here in uh in canada and i'm sure all over the world and uh being being a professor at laurentian there how do you (laughs) I don't know, how how do you feel about that? What's what's your feeling about the effect that you're having on on society and, and how these not only the wildlife populations that that you've been working on, but how they you're affecting just populations
2: all over uh, Canada and all over the world. Well, I don't know how widespread spread my influences on populations, but I certainly uh, have influenced some individuals. And, and it's great to see people like Dave, uh, Migucci at, you know, who has gone on to a really good job with, uh, with the government and he's going on, I understand now for his PhD. And I've throughout my career as a professor, I've had, you know, individuals, uh, like that, that I have kept touch with. I am still in touch with people that I thought 20, 25 years ago. And, uh, yeah, it's it's it brings a lot of satisfaction to to you to see that uh, these people actually went on and, and tried to uh, uh, in some way you know emulate or, or follow in your in your footsteps and uh, yeah it's uh, I, I love to be around young people you know it's uh, I really miss teaching now because. You know that that was the one aspect of teaching that I really enjoyed being around young people and and discussing these things and and seeing the sparkle in their eyes, especially if they are really interested in in, in animals, uh, you know, large animals like bears and and elk and and so on. And and Dave Dave was one of them.
0: So, Joe, I'm, as Chase alluded to, there's a really plethora of experience of uh, outdoor research that you're standing on, but I'm wondering, and obviously a long road to get there too, but was there a, kind of a moment in your life where you made the decision, you said, I'm going to be a biologist or like a, uh, you know, a researcher, someone who's dedicating their life to the ecological and uh, scientific
2: community in a way? Well, I was always into animals since, you know, ever since I was a kid, uh, I would always bring in stuff and uh, made my, my mother n- crazy uh, with all the critters that I brought home and snails and, and snakes and, and things like that and let them go in, in, inside the house. Um, anyways, but uh, my dad, actually, he was a businessman, and he really wanted me to go into economics and, and become a, a business person. And I, when I went to uh, university in the, in the States, I actually enrolled in economics in my first semester. And uh, I did about a month, and I just, you know, could not <laughs> hack it. I, I just thought I'm totally out of place here. And, uh, you know, the, the the first thing that that I thought of was was biology. You know, I want to try try biology. And and so I dropped a few of the business courses, uh, signed up for biology courses and, and got hooked from from then on. And, uh, you know, and, and I always wanted to work with animals, uh, uh, preferably large animals and and you know being a biologist obviously enables you to, to do that
1: what's your what's your draw to to large animals because there's I mean you, I've, I've come across quite a few different uh, biologists and and everyone kind of seems to have their their kind of niche or their thing that they just they love doing and they'd if they had to trade it all and that's what they would you know the one thing that they would work on so what what is your draw to, to those large larger species
2: well, I think it may be partially the adrenaline of, of working with a large animal like like it, and in you know I, I was always involved in capturing and radio collaring them and and sampling them and so on, and it's just uh, yeah, it's 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 the excitement of of actually being able to touch uh, these huge huge animals like an elk that weighs close to thousand pounds and and um you know feel feel their strength or or crawl into a bear then in, in, in the in the winter head first and uh you know j- jab the bear in the shoulder from about three feet away and and uh and tranquilize it so i i don't know i maybe i'm a bit of a, an adrenaline junkie but uh you know i i love dogs and i love cats and i've, I've always had animals around me all my, all my life.
1: Yeah. I can nice. see how, uh, crawling into those dens and jabbing a bear would, would be, uh, one hell of a rush. That's for sure. <laughs> Especially your first <laughs> time going in. Wow. Um, interesting, uh, amazing, amazing history there. Um, I kind of want to carry on to what, uh, what we, the, the main bulk of the, the podcast here. And uh, we brought you on today to talk about the work that you've been doing with elk in Ontario. Um, but, uh, but first, before we dive into that, I think uh, you would be the perfect person to uh, give our listeners here a, uh, a great introduction to how elk were first came about into America and uh, a little bit about their history and their... Their population uh, increases and declines, and, and the significant events that kind of molded um, our populations to what they are today.
2: Okay, so elk uh, actually originated in in Asia, um, or Eurasia, right? Uh, and they are very closely related to a couple of other species. Uh, that still live in Asia and Europe, like the red deer. Uh, There are uh, almost identical elk living in Mongolia. Um, So they migrated from Asia uh, across the Bering Strait into North America, probably around 120,000 years ago. So it was uh, during one of these um, Glaciation period. I, I believe it was the Illinoisan uh, or in- Illinois uh, glaciation, and uh, that's when the first fossils of uh, of elk uh, started appearing in North America. And they, for a while, they lived uh, uh, almost exclusively in Alaska on the Alaskan peninsula because that's uh, where they. Moved to first, and there seemed to be an area that was uh, free of ice. Uh, there, it, w- it was open and probably grassy, so it was a good, good area for them to uh, uh, to stay in. And then um, uh, during the the last glaciation, which lasted from about seventy thousand to about fifteen or twelve thousand years ago, uh, they seemed to uh, move gradually down onto the continent and you start finding fossils right across uh, North America. So uh, elk basically spread uh, all through the continent, uh, uh, from one coast to the other, uh, right through uh, the Rocky Mountains down to Mexico. Uh, And uh, when the first Europeans arrived, no one did any counts, right? There were no surveys of elk or anything like that. But just from what they were seeing, the the sheer numbers, uh, they estimated that there may may have been about 100 million elk uh, in on the continent at that time, right? So, you know, that's that's a that's a huge number. It's a huge uh, mass of of animals. And then within about 400 years. Uh, To uh, the turn of the 20th century, uh, they were decimated, uh, and only about 100,000 elk uh, were left on the whole continent. And it was mostly through colonization. It was, uh, you know, the destruction of habitat, uh, massive hunting just for meat. You know, basically slaughtering them for hides and meat, and um, you know, they estimate in, in uh, 1922, uh, there were probably somewhere between 80,000 and 90,000 elk left on the North American continent, and uh, most of them were in parks. So they were in Yellowstone uh, National Park and the Grand Tetons, uh National Park, and, and the rest was in, in Canada. And Canada still had some, uh, you know, wild populations, but again, they kind of retreated into the mountains, into the more remote areas. So from then on, from the 1920s on, uh, you know, people realized that uh, <laughs> they were wiping out elk and, and in the eastern part of the continent, they were totally wiped out. So uh, in Ontario, for example, the last elk was killed um, in uh, 1893. And it was close to to where I am right now. It's uh, an area north of North Bay, uh, Ontario, which is about hundred kilometers from from, uh, the French river where where I live. And uh, so that was the last out that was legally shot uh, in Ontario. And after that, they may have seen, you know, there have been a couple of sightings at the turn of the century, but by about 1910, there was absolutely nothing nothing left and so in the 20s and 30s they started uh, reintroducing elk uh, back uh, onto different parts of their former range and uh, in the east it was Michigan and Pennsylvania that were kind of the pioneers in uh, restoring uh, the elk populations there they were the first ones to bring elk back uh, to the east from uh, from western uh north america joe can and, i stop you there I got, I got, stuff. sorry
0: yeah i got a few questions if you don't mind before we keep uh rolling along too far because uh yeah. that, that's such a rich history you just described there um mainly so when the elk first came across the 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 ice bridge there I'm guessing they migrated with a bunch of other animals and uh and the humans followed them. is that kind of uh the situation there like probably some tribes followed these this large migration wave across that ice bridge?
2: yeah, I think the humans came came in much later uh, the the i guess oldest fossils that you find in in Alaska uh that were signs of any human life were probably about 15,000 years ago. So, you know, elk were already here for, uh, you know, a hundred thousand years, uh, before people, but, uh, yeah, uh, people did eventually move across as well. And obviously elk were one of the the sources of of food and, and hides and clothing and, and, uh, ornaments uh for their uh for their um, uh clothes and so on right
0: so i'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek or i'm asking this a little bit tongue-in-cheek but are are elk an invasive species then or are they just naturalized at this point in time would we say or are humans really the invasive species in this equation here
2: well technically uh both are invasive <laughs> because they have <laughs> they have both invaded the continent, uh, but you know you have to ask yourself what are uh, non-invasive uh, species that are left in North America? Because uh, during the interglaciation periods, you had these this megafauna here that were mammoths and and uh, giant sloths and saber-toothed tigers and and uh, cave bears and so on. And, and none of these species exist anymore. And, and those were probably the endemic or, or native uh, species to North America. Uh, and of course, you have a whole scale of smaller uh, mammals. Uh, some, some of them have, have been here for a long, long time. But yeah, uh, it's, so it's that- hard these days to say what is invasive and what's not invasive. Humans are definitely inv- invasive species. <laughs>
0: so building so on that, all over. yeah, building on that, we so we had kind of one wave of humans come over to North America and then, and, you know, um, I guess what would be considered that, that pre-contact wave and then historically speaking from like a, a human perspective, we had the second wave, which is like the the Columbus wave or whatever you want to call it um and you mentioned that that was a real force in kind of driving down elk numbers what was kind of like the what was the harvesting or the the scientific or whatever the the means are there that kind of worked against the elk as that second wave of humans started to come across
2: well there was obviously a need for meat for for the settlers or the armies that were invading and, and so on and and elk live in large um herds right just like bison and bison were wiped out bison were actually much worse off than elk but uh, very similar in their social habits right living in very large numbers so it's it's easy to especially if you have firearms you know if you have guns and and horses to to chase these animals on uh to just go and and slaughter uh, as many as you want in in one one shot sort of uh so you know people uh found it very easy to to hunt these animals for meat and uh took advantage of it why has
1: okay. why has there like uh i mean Everybody knows about the great herds of bison and uh that once roamed North America but like it wasn't until like later years in my life that I found out that there was these massive herds of elk roaming around and and maybe uh you might not know the answer to this but why why is that almost like a, a not as important fact in history is do you have any do do Yield elk get that? the
0: same cred as bison? Yeah,
1: you're asking? pretty much.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think bison are probably a sexier animal uh, for people than <laughs> an elk is. <laughs> you know, they are huge and, and they uh just their appearance, you know, they have this this uh um beastly uh beastly appearance and and elk are much more graceful and they are very similar to, to deer, you know, which are familiar to people. And so they are not that, that special, I guess. Uh, bison is, is a very special uh, looking animal. you know, it, it, it is related to, to cattle, to, to cows, but it looks totally different, uh, you know, than, than, than a cow does. Um, so I think that people somehow uh, idolized uh, bison much more. Uh, than than the elk, and uh, also I th- I think the original First Nations um, worshipped the bison much more than they did did elk, right? And they depended on on bison much more. And uh, uh, when when they lost uh, them, and again, it was mostly due to uh, the European uh, uh, settlement, and and Americans actually wiped out bison on purpose to take the food away from the native tribes that were at war with them, right? Um, So I guess in the folklore and and in the history of the colonization of of the United States, especially uh, the bison played a much larger role than, than elk then.
0: Animals may not have politics, but uh, humans certainly do. So that's that's interesting to hear the human perspective on that. And um, and so I'm wondering if parks really played this like critical role during that time for not only the elk but these other species here that we know to be endangered.
2: Yes, uh, definitely for elk and and for bison, uh, Yellowstone National Park uh, was uh, the source of many of these elk. Uh, Uh, that were reintroduced to other parts of of the continent and uh, also to Michigan and Pennsylvania in uh, in the east so uh, uh, most of these elk that are now in eastern uh, North America came from uh, uh, The West and and the Yellowstone elk were actually their ancestors uh, if you want to call it that and uh, bison were very similar. I, I mean, bison uh, were only uh, left in in a couple of uh, national parks and on private land as well. Uh, so private ranchers preserved uh, a few of these bison herds, and now in the last 10 years or so, they are being uh, reintroduced back into the wild. and And the national parks, like Banff, uh, uh, are actually uh, reintroducing uh, some of these. Uh, uh bison uh back uh back into the wild
0: yeah we've got some bison in uh, manitoba here too that are kind of free range i know riding mountain national park has some of them and uh fort white alive has them in Winnipeg, but obviously in a much more constrained area i don't know if they'd be called wild at that point um but so we're kind of we're kind of at this point in history or chase did you have something out there
1: i was just going to say there's a there's a wild herd up uh in uh, the Inner Lake too, up by Chittick Lake. Oh a, yeah, that's woodland right. Woodland bison.
0: That's, yeah, so different subspecies too, right? Um, from the plains, and I'm wondering too, like, so we're we we kind of left off. We're at the 20s now, and the the both Canada and America are now starting to saying, hey, maybe we should do something about these depleting wildlife populations. Maybe we need to think about how we engage with wildlife a little differently. What was the kind of next steps or like how did we look at building up those wildlife populations again in the 20s and 30s?
2: Well, uh, I am mostly familiar with the reintroductions to, to the east because I've been uh, kind of interested in how elk uh Came to to some of these areas, and I've I've visited Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, just to get sort of their history, their uh, um, you know uh, view of, of uh, why elk uh, were brought back and so on. And and in most cases, you're looking at uh, hunters uh, groups and associations that uh, became the you know gave the impetus to. Uh, bring elk back because they you know obviously wanted to have another uh, game species in in the environment Um, and they also came up with with uh, a lot of the funds Uh, so in in our case here here in Ontario um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation uh, was uh, instrumental in in, uh, helping out with the reintroduction uh, supplying some of the funds, but also supplying the vehicles uh, to transport them in and uh, volunteer uh, drivers and so on. Back in the 20s and the 30s, they actually would load uh, the elk onto train cars and um, just, you know, send them <clears throat> to wherever uh, <laughs> the people <laughs> wanted them, and and they would just uh, uh, stop the train. Uh, Open the the car and and let them out, and uh, uh, that was the extent of the reintroduction, uh, you know, strategy. Um, in some cases, they would actually keep them in enclosures. Like here in Ontario, uh, back in the 30s, there was a, a medium security uh, prison farm uh, called Burwash uh, Prison Farm, and and they actually brought some out there in the mid thirties and they kept them in a large enclosure uh, enclosure, maybe 10, 12 acres. And, um, they bred them until there were, I don't know, maybe 150. And then they started releasing them, uh, into, into the environment. That's cool. So, yeah, it, it was mostly, uh, uh, I think in the, in the beginning, it was the government, uh, together with hunting, uh, lobby uh that started bringing the elk back
0: does that train car program still exist because every time i walk past one of the s- spots in my park that's right next to me i'm like man i feel like there should be some elk in here but uh my my partner just laughs at me but like i'm guessing the train car program's long and gone by these days
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, that's too bad yeah there are uh, there are different techniques now for transporting uh uh the elk and uh they use stock uh uh, stock uh, trucks you know livestock trucks in some cases but uh uh, we used actually these uh, uh, fifth wheel trailers uh, on on uh, just pickup trucks and we would uh, get probably somewhere between 14 and, and 16 elk into one of the cars uh, the trailers and, and pack them fairly closely so that they couldn't um, move around very much. And, and then you just drive like hell and, you know, try and get from point A to B as quickly as you can. And then you release them into um, into an enclosure and you feed them and make sure that they uh, get used to the environment before uh, you, you uh, release them into the wild, right?
1: I'm curious, is it... Uh... Uh, do you plan this around uh, specific times of the years when the when the elk uh, when the bulls aren't carrying their antlers, or is it just uh, opportunistic whenever um, the the timing and the funds and everything seems to line up?
2: Well, it it mostly depends on uh, uh, when the elk can be captured, right? And and we got our elk in uh, Elk Island National Park. Where they live, in a, it's a huge enclosure. It's, uh, I think it's like 20 by 20 kilometers. Uh, but uh, you still have to get the elk into uh, uh, a space where you can handle them because they have to be checked for uh, diseases before they are shipped, right? Uh, we also collared like 95% or 98% of the elk that we brought in were, had radio collars on them. Um, and we ear tag them as well. So you have to get them into these, uh, traps first, corral traps where you can get maybe 15, uh, at a time. And that only happens once the snow comes and the elk are attracted to, uh, you know, supplementary food. So they, uh, bait bait the traps with hay. And, and because there is a shortage of natural food, uh, outside, they tend to go, go into the trap and uh, there's either an automatic door or someone is watching how many go in and they pull a, a cable and, and uh, you know, shut the door. And then you've got uh, a bunch of elk in- inside and then you, they have these chutes and runways uh, through which they can bring them into the handling area. <clears throat> and you have these squeezes uh, where a single elk goes in. You uh, bring a, a lever down, and it, it brings the sides of, of the uh, of the cage onto the elk, so it, it immobilizes it, and you can open windows, uh, you know, anywhere on its on its body, so you can put a radio collar around its neck, you can uh, put a tag in its ear, you can take a blood sample, and so on. And then you open the squeeze and uh, let them run again. Right. So yeah.
0: That's cool. So we're kind of getting into present day. I, I'm wondering, though, like whose idea was it? Whose crazy idea was it to say, hey, we're going to trap some elk and then we're going to move them and we're going to let them out? Like who who had that conversation at the start? And like who, who got the ball rolling on this kind of like uh, Sudbury job here that was going to be the reintroduction here?
2: Well, we actually had a remnant um, elk population here from uh, the 1930s and uh, 1940s and that was the only place in all of Ontario where elk uh, survived in in a very small number when I started working on, on them there were probably between 40 and 50 elk uh, left here and uh, we uh, just wanted I, I was really fascinated by the fact that there were actually elk in the province no one really knew about it uh, I found out and, and I, I really wanted to uh, see where they were and, and uh, you know what they were doing, how they moved in, in the course of the year and what they were eating and what was killing them and why weren't there more than just 40 or 50. So we, um, for four years, four winters, we actually did some uh, uh, helicopter uh, capture. Uh, we would dart them uh, not from the helicopter. We actually found that it was much easier to drop off the darters on the ground and then use the helicopter to hurt the elk towards the the darters who were hidden behind trees and stuff. And, and sometimes the elk would run right over you almost, right? So <clears throat> it was fairly easy to get a dart into their butt. So we uh, darted 17 elk, I believe, and put radio collars on them. And you know, followed them throughout the year, and uh, so when they were when they were calving, and where they were calving, and and where they were in the winter, summer, and so on, and people, uh, I guess, somehow, uh, started getting interested in elk because they they knew there was a study going on, and uh, it was the. Uh, fH that's the Ontario Federation of anglers and hunters who uh, you know contacted me and and they sent a couple of people up and uh, they wanted to go out in, in in the field and do some radio tracking and so on and and suddenly they you know people became very interested in in this population and uh, and so they started pushing uh, for uh, reintroduction and uh, there was there were a couple of politicians that were uh, members of the OFAH who uh, lobbied the Ministry of Natural Resources and and so on. And finally, it came to uh, a decision, and uh, there was a restoration plan worked out in 1997. And in 1998, we started bringing these elk into the province. Yeah. So
0: Just how did you how how did you hear about the the remnant population like obviously that wasn't on facebook because i'm guessing that was not around at the time
2: no i actually when i was at guelph uh, at the university of guelph and i was working with bats uh one of the profs there one of the wildlife biology profs uh mentioned uh i guess during a conversation that there were elk up close to to Sudbury or around the French river. And, you know, I, I, at that time I thought it was a joke. Uh, I I didn't think that he was for real. And uh, so when I did come into this area, I asked about elk and and whether it was true that there were some uh, around and and people actually, the ministry employees, uh, Ministry of Natural Resources employees, Confirmed that they occasionally see elk when they fly moose surveys right with the helicopter, and so that intrigued me even more. And you know, I started looking for funds to uh, to get up there and, and rent rent a helicopter and and see if I could I could find uh, some of these elk, and and we did, uh, you know. And and then I had a, a friend, uh, a colleague at work. Uh, he actually worked at the college. Um, who was really uh, into elk as, as well, uh, and he helped a lot. He he uh, raised a lot of funds, uh, approached a lot of different agencies and and groups, and and so we were able to get enough money uh, together to uh, to fly. Uh, you know, for four winters, and and helicopters are not cheap. I mean, you're paying uh, those days around thousand bucks uh, an hour right for for helicopter time and and we would go up at nine in the morning and finish usually around three in the afternoon uh and you were lucky if you got three elk in a day you know and if if you had a good day you you darted three elk i don't think we ever got more than that so they were so spread around and you know uh hard to find and, and then hard to actually Uh, get the dart into because there weren't too many of them
0: yeah and the pilots in those helicopters are very suspect too let's be honest about that
2: (laughs) (laughs) we actually we actually had a couple of really good good pilots that uh, really loved elk as well and and they thought it was it was great uh, what we are doing because uh, most of these pilots just fly from point A to B and, you know, they, they either deliver something or they deliver people and so on. And it's fairly boring work, uh, but, you know, suddenly they were chasing elk around and, and uh, they could, when we had an elk down tranquilized, they could come and help with the handling and so on. They thought, they thought it was great.
1: I don't know. I don't know how much Dave told you about uh, how we met uh, Joseph, but uh, um, I I flew Dave on uh, a lot of the polar bear work he did up in Churchill, and, and I'm uh, I've I've done quite a bit of uh, wildlife work around the province here in Manitoba when I when I was flying helicopters. But uh, yeah, it's certainly one of the the more exciting parts of the job, absolutely, especially for somebody that loves wildlife. Yeah.
0: So these elk were just kind of hanging out, staying low and, um, just trying to keep their head out of trouble. It sounds like, and no one was really doing anything with them, um, until you and maybe a few other people picked up on them. And if I had to guess, knowing what I know about elk, they were probably back in the thickest, most remote stuff you could kind of get your hands on in that country. Um, but you're saying here that what, for the next steps to happen after you, you, like, what did you find in those studies? Did you, and you, you, you came to the conclusion kind of, or uh, at least some people that are interested in elk management came to the conclusion yeah. that we needed to bolster the that population somehow. Was that what happened there?
2: Yeah. Well, I have to go back a bit. Like the elk were fairly uh, successful in recolonizing some of the Ontario habitat back in the 40s and the 50s and then suddenly uh, There was this scare about the giant liver flu uh, That's a parasite that attacks the liver of uh, ungulates, hoof, hoofed animals, right? So it can get into moose deer uh, elk uh, and Domestic cattle and sheep as well and so on and it if the infestation is really bad then it they actually destroy the liver and and of course, the animal then then dies. It it can't function uh, without a, a, a liver. Uh, so they were trying. They were seeing uh, these large uh, infestations of this liver fluke, especially around these areas where the elk uh, were being reintroduced and kept in, in enclosures. And uh, <clears throat> when they killed a few of them, they they realized that that these elk were quite infested and. Uh, they were afraid that this uh, parasite would spread into uh, domestic uh, animals cattle and sheep uh, Bison that were kept at the same facility and and so on so uh, suddenly there was a, a, a big uh, Turnabout, you know in, in in the opinion about elk and uh, uh, they started slaughtering them uh, on site so uh, elk were persona non grata for for quite a while and they were hunting elk for 30 years uh, from the 50s until 1980 uh, you could shoot an elk with a deer license you didn't even have to buy a, a, an elk license in Ontario if you uh, purchased the deer license uh, you could also shoot an elk uh, on on top of, of the deer. So suddenly, you know, even though there were quite a few elk in certain areas already in in the wild, because of this this um, hunting uh, effort, uh, they were pretty much wiped out in in 30 years. And and uh, by 1980, there was only this small pocket left in in this area. And as you said, these out here, they just hid. They went into the most uh, godforsaken parts of the Pre-Cambrian Shield, uh, you know, hiding uh, on islands in the French River Delta and under the, the conifers and so on. Uh, so so they were really hard to, there were no roads. Uh, the only way that you could get there would be by boat and, and even that was pretty hard because you had uh, rapids in the way and so on. So anyways, so that was the the remnant um, uh, herd and um, obviously for the government in order to prove for or to to make a, a case for reintroduction uh, you have to show that uh, this population would be viable if you introduced more animals. So that was our our main purpose. We wanted to find out well, You know, these elk survived now for 60 years in in the Ontario bush uh, without any really management. Uh, uh, There was predation for 30 years. There was hunting and so on. And still they they did okay. I mean, there weren't a lot of them, but they were producing uh, calves. We would see calves every year. Um, And they seem to be very large animals as well. It seems like the harsh environment kind of selected for uh, the strongest uh, animals in the population. So they were pretty big elk uh, compared to uh, the elk, uh, for example, in Elk Island National Park. So that, you know, we um, basically found out that with the amount of habitat that's available uh the rate of predation which at that time was almost non-existent from from wolves uh that the population would probably uh do quite well if if they were uh boosted by uh, by more more numbers you know I, so that we presented that case to the government and they they accepted it i have a couple questions for you here uh joseph um how is
1: liver fluke passed on between animals?
2: Okay, the liver fluke has an intermediate host uh, in the snail. Uh, like, mm. uh, it's an, mostly an aquatic snail. Uh, so what happens is that uh, the uh, liver fluke eggs get passed out in the feces, right, in the droppings of, of the elk, and then they develop into larvae and go into the water They swim in the water and get into aquatic snails and then elk graze in Mm -hmm. in sort of the semi-marshy areas and so on. And they pick up these snails with the vegetation and then the snail burrows through, uh, sorry, the larva uh, burrows through uh, the wall of the intestine and gets into uh, the bloodstream. And ends up in, in in the liver, and there it develops into a mature um, fluke, which is a worm, kind of a flat worm. It's about an inch and a half long, the giant liver fluke, and, and maybe an inch wide. And uh, yeah, and they they reproduce there and pass on eggs, and and the cycle starts uh, all over again. So, in areas where um, there's a lot of Wet, you know, grassland and, and so on, and, and there are a lot of snails. Uh, this liver fluid gets passed uh, from a, one animal to another very, very easily. Sounds,
1: yeah. sounds very similar to the, the life cycle of uh, brainworm, which is a bit of a hot topic uh, throughout the province here right now, also.
2: Yeah,
0: I was just yeah. going to say it's, it's interesting how the conservation models evolve because here in Manitoba now we're looking at killing off white-tailed deer to protect the moose populations in some areas so it's it seems like you you trade one for the other sometimes or uh it 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 blows my mind to think that we would have at one point thought of killing off a bunch of elk because it was uh they they thought it was going to tear down the populations of these other cervids right so yikes
2: Uh, well they thought that the elk actually brought the liver fluke from Alberta with them, which was false because uh, they later fo- found out that uh, the liver fluke was endemic in all of the angulates in Ontario, in moose, mm. in caribou, uh, especially, and also in white-tailed deer. So the, it has always existed, but no one ever looked for it. And if you don't have very high infestations, it does not affect the animal very much. But if you pack a lot of animals together, and they keep passing the stuff, uh, you know, uh, to one another over and over. Then you get very, uh, you know, uh, high infestations of these parasites, and then yeah, that, then uh, you, you've got a problem. So as soon as the elk get out of the enclosures and they spread onto the landscape, there is no more uh, problem with the liver fluke. Uh, the problem was only in those breeding enclosures, right? Hmm,
1: interesting. Yeah. Um- and as we talk in, into the conversation here and um, talk about your studies on Ontario, um, you're talking about some of the terrain and some of the habitat that these elk are living in. Can you paint us a bit of a picture uh, for the listeners here as to uh, some of the, uh, the habitat, obviously, and some of the, what the landscape looks like where these elk populations are surviving?
2: Yeah, so we are on the uh, pregame lower Precambrian shield, and uh, in the Great Lakes St. Lawrence uh, uh, forest, which is a, a mixed forest, uh, mostly uh, I guess typical uh, of of uh, uh, like southern s- South Central Ontario, and there are white pine and red pine. Uh, those trees are the the most uh, uh, prominent uh, trees on on the lower Precambrian shield, but it there's a mixture uh, also with hardwood. So you've got uh, sugar maple, red maple, uh, white birch, uh, yellow birch, uh, trembling aspen, uh, large-tooth aspen as well. So it's it's a mixture of both conifers and uh, deciduous trees. And it's a varied topography, a lot of uh, uh, rocky uh, ridges, uh, you know, change in elevation. So you, you've got wet kind of marshy and swampy uh, areas, and then you've got high um, elevation ridges, and uh, you would have oak, red oak on those. And uh, the elk actually like acorns uh, in, the, in the fall, so they would feed up on those ridges. Um, and in, in the summer, they go down into the lower uh, elevations and feed mostly on ground vegetation, on, on grasses and, and herbs and so on. Yeah.
1: Interesting, interesting. So um, I guess as, as we go on here into, into the, your journey of elk in Ontario, we've now uh, found the elk, the, the, the remaining 50, you've, you've collared a few of them and you've studied them for four years, and now uh, OFAH has contacted you saying, hey, let's get some, some elk back in the province here. We'd, we'd love to have another, you know, see this species thrive here again. Um, what, what kind of steps did you take from there to, to get this reintroduction happening?
2: Well, you have to convince the uh, Ministry of Natural Re- Resources that is responsible for wildlife in the province uh, to actually uh, approve or partner with you in, in the reintroduction. So <clears throat> that was um, one of the steps that needed to be uh, taken. So, uh, yeah, we approached the ministry, the, man- the wildlife managers uh, in the main office and, uh, you know, sh- showed them the results of, of the study and so on. And they, at that time, there were... Uh, people that were quite uh, favorable, uh, you know, uh, in, in their thinking to, towards elk uh, introduction. Uh, and so we started the whole process of you had to uh, first uh, look for suitable habitat in, in the province. So uh, habitat suitability index was one of the first steps that, that we had to go through. And you just map, you know, you. you uh, GIS uh, mapping for uh, you know suitable areas. So you didn't want very high human population. You didn't want agricultural areas because there is traditionally conflict between elk and and farmers. Right, elk tend to walk through fences and and feed on crops and and so on. Uh, you didn't want uh, fast-flowing rivers because uh, elk tend to go through the ice uh, and drown uh, in the winter uh, quite a bit. Uh, you didn't want areas with high wolf uh, populations. Uh, didn't want areas where uh, white-tailed deer were really prominent because of the uh, brainworm, right? Uh, so those were some of the parameters that were considered in. Uh, Uh, In in the habitat suitability index and of course all of the uh, speed vegetation uh, uh, That needed to to be part of it You know the food items that elk uh, normally uh, feed on. So that was one of the things and then you had to uh, In those areas you had to get together uh, groups of people that were willing to form a committee and actually put together a proposal for uh, the reintroduction of elk in their area. Right? So again, they had to go through public, uh, public meetings. Uh, you had to in- invite all of these stakeholders, so Ministry of Agriculture, Natural Resources, Environment, Farmers, um, uh, Local Outfitters, uh, Hunters, uh, First Nations, and so on. So all these people had to come together uh, and uh, basically give their okay uh, to the introduction of elk in in that area.
0: Joe, you talk about the the, uh, habitat suitability index. And I'm wondering, like, sometimes I walk around in the bush and I'm like, this spot feels elky to me. This feels elky. Um, Most of the time I'm wrong but I'm, I'm guessing you, you might have a better sense of it. Like, do you ever get like a spidey sense or something that this is like elk should be here or this is where elk, uh, live? Does that happen to you?
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I, mean, I've, I've been chasing them around for 30 years, so I, I pretty much know where, uh, they, they like to be. And, uh, uh, yeah, in, in the local environment, uh, you, you know exactly uh, whether it's an alky <laughs> area or, or, or not right um, but there are also other other parts of the province where there are no elk and and a lot of the times yeah I, I would think yeah this this would be a really good good area uh, for elk uh, I mean they basically like um, a lot of open areas uh, grassy areas interspersed with with bush uh and a lot of you know deciduous like hard um, hardwood uh, species and but they do need the conifers in in the winter for for shelter right because they if the snow gets to um, about 60 uh, centimeters two feet deep uh, they start having trouble especially the the calves start having trouble going through it so their movement is impeded uh, they are easier prey for wolves, and uh, they also tend to, uh, uh, you know, get malnourished because it's hard for them to get from one food source to another. Uh, so, you, if if there is a lot of deep snow, it's it's hard for the calves to to survive uh, through through the winter. Uh, the adult elk are, are pretty good; they are okay to about three feet of snow, but uh, but the calves get impacted. Hmm. so yeah so the conifers are are good because they intercept the snow and uh there's less underneath and they can travel through that through that uh habitat quite well
1: right that's cool interesting so um while we're on the topic of of food there um you know they obviously do some grazing in the summer months and into the fall and i guess like grazing and foraging and i one thing i didn't know was that elk were uh did feed on acorns in the fall. Um, What other kind of uh, forages or grasses are are elk looking for throughout uh, the seasonal variations there?
2: Well, in in the summer, they pretty much feed on meadow grasses um, and you see them a lot of uh, the the time out in in the open. Uh, If if there are, um, let's say dry marshes or abandoned fields. Uh, In in this area here, we used to have a lot of settlement uh, by farmers, homesteaders, and then they would abandon the farms and go and work in the mines, right? Sudbury is a a mining town, and they could make much more money at mining than they did at farming. So, you've got a lot of these abandoned uh, fields uh, around and the elk like that. So, they, they feed on grasses mostly, in the summer. And then in the fall, uh, they tend to get to um, uh, these higher ridges and the, they'll go for acorns. Uh, if there are uh, any other types of, of nuts, like beech nuts uh, around, uh, they would feed on those as well. We don't have a lot of beach up here. It's, it's too far north. But if you go a little bit further south, uh, there is quite a bit of beach as well. And then in, in the winter, they uh, switch to grazing and, and they graze mostly on uh, uh, white cedar. Uh, they uh, also take uh, poplar, uh, aspen. Uh, so th- those are the preferred and, and red maple uh, as well. So those twigs, uh, they'll chew and, and uh, if they can, they'll, they'll dig on the ground uh if the snow is soft enough and and they'll dig up grasses as well in in the winter
1: so are they i'm assuming they're they're kind of similar to uh, to deer and moose in the sense that they they prefer the younger sapling type uh trees to to graze and forage on
2: that's right yeah so they they would feed mostly on on the younger uh trees uh and on branches that that uh, hang down to to their height but uh yeah, uh, you see the cedars, uh, like white cedar, uh, that have distinct browse lines. As far as the elk can can reach, mm-hmm. uh, they'll browse it, and and uh, you know they, they obviously can't can't go any higher than that. So uh, that, that's one of the signs that elk are around uh, is the browse line on on the cedar trees
1: what about uh hazelnuts because hazel hazel brush is one of the things that we battle a lot when we're out in the field and in my mind i'm a lot of the time i'm thinking man i wish i could just get rid of all almost all this stuff to so i don't have to climb through it <laughs> i can hardly see my my hand in front of my face when i'm going through it but is that is that something that's that could be an important uh, food source for those elk in there
2: uh they don't feed on the twigs Uh, we know that uh the nuts themselves i'm not sure how much they can actually get because bears get a lot of them and squirrels uh, as well and we've got tons of red squirrels and they tend to get to the nuts uh pretty early um you know in, in in the summer um, so I'm not sure how much would be left over for, for elk, but it's, it's possible. I, I'm not sure, but I, I don't think I've ever come across, uh, you know, any, any food habit studies that would show that elk actually eat hazelnuts. Right, right. So
1: get rid of some squirrels, and maybe that'll change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Maybe it's the shell, the hard shell, you know. It's, yeah. They don't like to uh, crack it.
0: And we're, we're So we're kind of at the point here too in the in the story here where we've got enough political will, we've got enough research to kind of get moving forward on things, so now's the time to catch these elk and move them. Were, were you there for like the, the capture part of this or did someone else do it and you were kind of uh, following along later?
2: No, I would actually go to uh, Elk Island uh, every uh, January. Uh, they would usually contact us if, if they got elk, uh, as soon as got, they got around 50, uh, to a hundred elk in, in their, uh, traps and corrals, uh, they would, you know, contact us and tell us to, uh, to come and get them basically. So we would organize a convoy of trucks and, uh, we would get anywhere, uh, from, I think the least we got in one, uh, Transport was about 29 and the most was close to 60. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, so we would go out there. Uh, I actually drove out a couple of times and flew out once or twice. And um, I was part of the processing of the elk. So they are already captured, they are in enclosures, but then uh, they chase them through these uh, shoots and into the squeezes. And that's where, you know, I, I would come in and put the radio collar on them and, and put an ear tag in. And there would be a vet that would uh, take a blood sample and, and do the, the scratch for uh, bovine TB. You know, they, uh, uh, that's just to, to see if there is an immune response uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to the virus after about three days. And yeah, so all these things would be done uh, inside the uh, the squeeze, and then they would be processed. Uh, you had to wait for three or four days, I think, to uh, for the test to uh, be completed for a disease, and then you would load them into the trailers and head to Ontario uh, with them. So yeah, I, I was part of that. We we had four shipments of elk um to this area and i was part of uh every single one so i how how many how many elk did you move in total uh to this area we moved 170. wow uh but in total to ontario it was six uh no 460 i think yeah wow
1: and that that was
2: all four release areas in the province and we were one of them yeah
0: and that was all from Elk Island? It sounds kind of like this magical place, Elk Island, but it, were all those elk captured on Elk Island?
2: Yeah, yeah, wow. they were all captured there. They have bison as well. That's cool.
0: And so and the, the the elk, after their release, they kind of mingle in like this elk hotel or something like that for about, you, you say, a couple of weeks until they're they're settled down a bit and used to the environment. What was that feeling like when you finally like opened the fence and let them go was it like i I imagine that's got to be one of the coolest things that a person could see kind of seeing their their work come to a culmination like that and uh have these wild animals returned to their their habitat in some ways
2: yeah uh, unfortunately they didn't always cooperate with us so when you (laughs) open (laughs) open the gate of the enclosure they would just sit sit in there and uh look at you and uh (laughs) they didn't really want to leave because they would spend up to a month uh, in that enclosure and we're pretty used to it and they were getting fed in there and, and watered and, and all that. But no, eventually uh, they would wander out, but uh, it would sometimes take uh, quite a while. So we actually had cameras uh, uh, set up, uh, you know, uh, uh, in different spots so that we could get every angle on, on the enclosure and, and the gate as they were leaving, and we, we would actually see them wander out on on video. But uh, yeah, it wasn't like you open the gate and they would pour out. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were too used to uh, to that environment, and uh, they were reluctant to uh, to get into this new area that they didn't know know at all, right? Yeah,
0: maybe I watched a little too much Disney in my time there, but yeah. <laughs> That's, that's cool to hear. So aside from the, uh, the uh, the what do they call that now, that the, the failure to launch kind of scenario that you just described there, were there any kind of surprises through this journey of uh, reintroduction that you encountered, any complications or something that you were kind of like, huh, I didn't think that was going to happen, but it did.
2: Yeah, we had a couple of things happen, actually. The first shipment uh, of about 50, uh, 50 elk, we used one of those stock uh, trailers, right? Those large trucks that you see on, on the highways with uh, livestock in them. And and, uh, and they just had too much room in there. And uh, every time that uh, the truck would stop to gas up and, and they had to spend one night uh, on, on the way uh, in, a, in a motel, uh, the elk would kind of mess around in, inside and they would pile up in, in, in one of the corners away from wherever there was a person close to the truck. And they actually got, uh, lo- a lot of them got injured uh, on on their legs because they would step on each other. Uh, so when we released them into the enclosure here in Ontario, we noticed that uh, you know a lot of them had lesions on, on their legs and uh, some of them had had swollen legs and so on and and uh, they got in infections as well because they were obviously stepping into their feces uh, in the in the truck and, and so on <clears throat> it, t- it takes about two days for uh, you know for uh uh the convoy to get from elk island park to uh where we are so uh they spent quite a bit of time in the truck so yeah we had we had some problems. We had to treat some of them with antibiotics, you know, isolate them from the rest of the group. Uh, We had a few mortalities, about four or five, uh, from that first batch uh, right in the enclosure from infections. So that was something that we needed to uh, correct in in the uh, subsequent uh, releases. And that's when we went to those uh, fifth wheel uh, trailers and we used uh, smaller space, uh, less amount of elk per trailer, and it worked much better. You know, they were packed in there; they couldn't really run around and step on each other. Uh, and as long as you got them in uh, quickly, you know, to uh, uh, to Ontario, uh, they were fine. The first shipment also had a problem because there was a huge uh, uh, snowstorm. Like a whiteout in in somewhere in in uh, Manitoba, uh, and uh, they had to stop for quite a while, and it was very cold, and uh, some of the wounds got actually frozen. You know, the mm. where they were injured uh, on their legs, so that contributed to to the, the problem as as, as well. Uh, you know. So yeah, you you run into uh, snacks like that, and and obviously you learn from from your mistakes. Uh, they also uh, told us that in the park that you could do a hard release, and a hard release is basically uh, what you descri- describe. You open the doors of the trailer and let let the elk run out, right? And and uh, you rejoice and. Uh, cheer and, and so on, but uh, uh, we were kind of uh, reluctant to do that in the middle of the winter because you're transporting them in January and uh, you know there's a lot of snow, it's very cold, but we thought uh, on one of the releases we would try a semi-hard release and we, uh, we kept them for only five or six days and then opened the, the enclosure. And let them go in, in January and, and it was a mistake because they dispersed all over the place they weren't acclimatized to the area they weren't used to it so they just uh, you know it was like shooting into a, a flock of, of birds and a lot of them did not make it uh, we lost uh, probably I would say 60 to 70% of that shipment and again it was close to 50 animals uh, before the end of March, uh, and, you know, calves, cows, and so on, a lot of them got uh, uh, killed by wolves uh, because they were weak, right? They just kept going and going through the snow and not feeding, and uh, the wolves had a really easy time of of getting to them. So, another mistake, Uh, then in the next two uh, shipments, we kept those animals for at least a month, uh, if not two, until the snow was already you know going away in in march at the end of march and uh you know then we would let them go and and they were used to that that particular site so they would not disperse that much they would hang around go back even into the enclosure and and feed on the hay and and so on right
1: yeah that's interesting because like uh lots of the conversations i've had with um Uh, biologists, you know, they tend to say that elk is, uh, elk are very, like, robust, resilient animals that, uh, you know, in their environment, they can, they can handle quite a bit, and, and uh, that some of the studies show that, like, you know, that, the I guess, like, uh, skeletal structural uh, investigations show, like, lots of broken bones that are healed, and, and all this stuff on 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 these animals, so they obviously can survive quite a bit. But I'm I'm assuming that uh, the added stress of transport and a new environment, and it probably all weighs pretty heavy on these animals.
2: Yeah, yeah, they were stressed, uh, quite stressed. And uh, you know, if you stress uh, the animals, then they are much more susceptible to infections and uh, and frostbite and so on.
0: Yeah. So where are the where are the elk at now, Joe? Like, what's the what's what's the count? What's the deal? Did they did they take off, or are we still kind of working on things here?
2: Well, we're uh, they have been here for twenty years now, and uh, we've been following them pretty closely until about three four years ago, uh, because uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources has kind of dropped the ball when it comes to elk management. They there is no but for elk surveys and, uh, um, you know, there's not much being done, no habitat management and so on. So uh, in our area, at least, uh, the elk took off. Uh, we, we were up to maybe 200 elk in 2012 and it doesn't seem like much when I say I, we brought in 170, but we lost at least 70, if not more, of those elk that we brought in originally, right? So uh, we doubled the population in in about 10 years, 10, 12 years. So they were doing okay. And in in this other area, which is south of uh, Algonquin Park, um, more to the east uh, of Ontario, uh, they were doing so well that they were estimating close to a thousand animals, and they introduced maybe 150 in, in that area. And they actually started hunting them there in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, since then, there has been a, a controlled uh, hunt uh, of elk. Uh, they usually give out tags. It's a lottery draw, so you can apply for it. It's for residents only, so non-residents cannot, uh, cannot apply. And uh, I think the last uh, number of tags that I checked, was 55 uh, that gave, uh, gave out uh, last year, that was in 2019, last year it made a, may have been a bit less because that population has dropped um, in, in the last uh, five or six years, and it seems to be the pattern right across, like in all of these four populations, including ours, there has been a, a decline uh, in the past three or four years in the numbers and we don't know exactly how many we've got right now because we haven't flown any surveys for the past three years. Uh, but I would say that right now in the province, we have at least 500 elk uh, among the four uh, populations.
1: Hmm. Interesting, so in, in your time studying all these uh, this herd, um, What are some of the factors that, uh, that you noticed that really affected populations? Like, you know, uh, when we talk about wildlife management, uh, in many senses, you talk about, you know, uh, the animals having good years, bad years, and, and just having these factors that, uh, play a key role in, in, uh, whether they have that good year or bad year. What, what are some of that, those, those those things that
2: play into elk populations? Okay, so when we uh, studied that remnant uh, population that was here for 60 years or so, uh, we didn't see a single case of predation, which we thought was kind of strange. You know, we, we didn't find any uh, elk that were killed by, by wolves. But there was drowning through the ice uh, was, was one of the major uh, problems. Uh, especially in the French River Delta where it flows into Georgian Bay on Lake Huron um, there are a lot of different channels uh, rapids and so on so the ice never gets uh, really safe uh, if it forms at all and they tended to uh, part of the population tended to hang around these these islands right in the delta and a lot of the times they would go through through the ice and once a heavy animal like that goes through the ice, uh, it never makes it back up, right? And another uh, mortality factor that we found was um, train kill. So they would walk on the railroad during the winter, especially because it's an easy uh, travel corridor, right? They, it, it gets cleared by trains and, and uh, these special plows that they run on the tracks. Uh, every day. so they always had an easy way uh, from one spot to another on, on the tracks and unfortunately a lot of the times the tra- train would uh, would hit uh, you know up to six, seven of them in, in one shot sometimes you know so that was that was uh, a major uh, mortality factor in, in that original population. Now with the new ones that we brought in, Predation suddenly became a a pretty important factor because in Elk Island National Park there are no wolves and there are very few bears. uh, As far as I know, no cougars. We don't have any cougars. Uh, uh, Once in a while you you hear of sightings here, but it's, uh, yeah, it's very, very rare. Uh, But those elk were not used to wolves and we have you know, pretty robust wolf population here, so the wolves were hitting them pretty hard. The new newcomers, uh, and uh, it took close to 10 years uh, for them to get, you know, smart to uh, to wolves and and start avoiding them effectively. But they still they still get wolves still get uh, calves uh, in in the winter, and they get even some of the the cows. A lot of our collared cows got got killed by wolves, so predation now is, is still a factor. Uh, the train kill is a factor; they still get get hit by trains. They don't drown as much anymore because the, their their uh, range has shifted away from those uh, dangerous areas, uh, you know, where the ice was was too weak. And lately, we've also had uh, some uh indigenous hunting uh of at least a couple of the populations and you know that that is another contributing factor to uh, uh probably to the decline in, that we see in in these herds uh during the past few years so yeah we, we we don't have any hunting hunting is uh illegal in our area but uh um indigenous hunters can take uh, basically, uh, you know wh- whatever they feel is is their their right to take for uh, supporting their family. Right? So,
0: mm-hmm. so some some real like a uh, a lot of these things kind of compound or collude to 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 work against the elk in some ways. You've you've taken us through a, a history here of not only like uh, elk moving into to Canada but also shrinking in population size from hundreds of millions down to a hundred thousand and then eventually um, efforts to restore those populations and now here we are with a little bit of a question mark of what's going on with the elk in Ontario I feel like so what do you what do you think the future for elk in Ontario is here where what are you where where are you leaning on this
2: well we uh actually just recently formed a, a group of uh, people that are really concerned about uh, elk, uh in the province. Uh, some of them are retired biologists uh, like me, and some of them are uh, former ministry uh, managers. Um, and uh, we have a couple of uh, indigenous people on the, in the group as well. And we, um, our meeting with uh, the ministry uh, managers uh, you know just to uh, start a dialogue dialogue and see what uh, what's going on why there is no no management uh, going on uh, in the province we uh, uh, there was a a, an ontario elk management plan uh, drafted back in 2011 and you know there are all these great strategies in it, but uh, basically uh, none of these strategies have been acted on. Uh, so uh, we just want to, you know, ask some questions and uh, and push for for management. You know, at least uh, monitoring the populations on a on an annual basis so that we know what's happening, uh, how many elk we have, and what we can do to uh, to improve the their status.
1: Interesting. Well, uh, Joseph, we don't want to keep you too much longer here. We've been uh, chatting elk here for a, for a good amount, and it's it's certainly been very informative. Um, one last question I want to pitch to you before uh, before we take off here is: if you had uh, if you were able to travel back into time and uh, study any animal that you wanted to. Um, would you travel back uh, to a different era? Would you stay here? Where would you go? What would you study?
2: Oh, I, I think that I've pretty much studied what, what I wanted to study. I thought it was really exciting to work on bears. Uh, I worked on bears for 12 years, and that was probably my favorite uh, time uh, working with wildlife. So, yeah, if, if I would go back, I would go back uh, 20 years or 12 years when I was working on bears, and, and that was a lot of fun. But, you know, I, I like elk, and I've, I've been interested in elk for the past 35 years, and, and I think I would always go back. It was the whole reintroduction process was was very interesting, and it was very exciting, you know, going across the country to... To get these animals and, and bringing them back to the province and making sure that uh, uh, you know they were okay and they were in the best best possible shape to to uh, be released into the wild. Um, yeah, I don't think I would do things any differently uh, than than what I what I have done. Unfortunately, uh, now, you know, I, I just can't do uh, what I used to do uh, anymore. I, I can't run after elk with a dart gun uh, through waist deep snow <laughs> and jump out of the helicopter, um, you know, after them and so on. But, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, those days, uh, I would gladly, gladly repeat. That's one hell of an answer
1: and sounds like uh, a life well lived there or a career well lived. uh, Certainly nothing less than extraordinary uh, from the stories you've told us here. I want to thank you again for coming on. Tristan, do you have anything left to say?
0: joe i i, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast it means a lot to us but i also want to thank you for uh not only the years a lifetime of dedication to wildlife in in canada and um all the research and work you've done to help not just elk but the other animals you listed bears turkeys um bats you know i think it's it it's indicative of how when we come together and we do research and we learn from each other that we can make a difference and uh so I thank you for sharing your knowledge here with us today and our listeners, and I thank you for your work. Thanks, Joe.
2: No problem. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, Joe,
1: thanks again. We'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Okay, bye.
0: And so that was 81. Thanks so much again, Joseph Hammer, coming on the podcast. And I think, again, just want to reiterate like that behind-the-scenes view of conservation and restoration
1: yeah it's it's super interesting i think with with all the conversations that i've had with uh with joseph you know this this elk project was a huge part of his uh his career but i feel like we're just barely scratching the surface with it with him too so um hopefully we have some future conversations around uh many of the other things that he was involved in uh in in, uh wildlife you know totally and then, uh, oh, before we go, I wanted to
0: mention, uh, if, uh, if we had a wild goose sighting in Safeway at Selkirk. And when I say that, what I mean is I saw someone wearing our tan goose hoodie and all my way out, I shot him a, Hey, and gave him a thumbs up. <laughs> so, and I said, nice hoodie. Nice. So if that was you and Selkirk, uh, shoot us a DM on, uh, Instagram. Just to let us know who you were because you got waved down by some rando.
1: Awesome. I also uh, received the photo, speaking about wildlife sightings, of a uh, a wild turkey today walking up the steps of the legislative building. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> The turkeys are trying to say something, eh? They're coming to take over, man.
0: Maybe we should set up a camp there. That nah, wouldn't be a bad idea. Memorial Park. Yeah. Just cutting turkey calls. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for listening, folks. That was 81. Again, ways to help support us. Check out the store. Check out the YouTube channel. Follow us on social media. And if you know someone who's interested in what we do, maybe not tune into us, share it with them. Word of mouth has been a a great thing for us too. Mm -hmm. So if you're in doubt, word of mouth, I would say.
1: Yeah. And don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, and leave us a comment on whatever platform you're listening to, folks.
0: So before we let you go and before we see you again, I would like to remind you, keep your knife sharp, lines tight, and stick on the ice or what's the last one there? Powder dry. Uh,
1: yeah, measure twice, cut once.
0: That's right.